Welcome to Diplomacy Talks. I'm William. And I'm Timo. In this podcast series, we explore the newest narratives shaping the field of diplomacy. Episode 1, Diaspora Diplomacy. Hey William, this gives me some good vibes, some good rhythms, but where are we actually? It feels like Havana. <laughs> Close, but not quite. The clip is actually from Cuba Fest in the city of Miami. And oddly enough, Miami is actually home to the world's largest concentration of Cubans, outside of Cuba, of course. In fact, Florida is home to most of the Cuban diaspora within America, which brings us to the topic of diaspora diplomacy, which we are going to be talking about today. Yes, uh, this topic of diaspora diplomacy is really interesting indeed. It's actually relatively new, and this link between diaspora and influence uh, on foreign policy has been gaining momentum and steam recently in both academic circles, but also within governments around the world. Perhaps then a good place to start would be to ask, what is a diaspora? This is actually a very important notion to cover from the beginning here. And uh, let me just delve into some etymological and historical perspectives on the term diaspora. Well, it's actually derived from a Greek term, diasporain, which means dispersion. And in Jewish history, um, it has been used to describe the status of Jews during the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century BC. But the more recent use of the term, however, has to do with the position of the Jews that resulted from this abortive revolt against the Roman occupation of Palestine in the first century. Uh, of course, they destructed the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 uh, Anno Domine, and it actually occasioned a mass exodus of Palestine's Jewish population, and also led to the creation of a dispersed Jewish community that has been scattered all around the globe and even nowadays. It's good to know about the historical context, but obviously now in the modern sense, there's more than just the Jewish diaspora. So, and one of the things that springs to my mind at first when I think about diasporas, you know, the sense of moving from one country to another, most categorize that just as immigration. So I think an important thing to figure out is what separates diaspora from just immigration. That's a crucial point here, William. But before I answer this question, let me do a, an important distinction. Because we are, during this episode, going to cover uh, a lot of terms. But two especially will come quite often, which are country of origin and country of residence. So the country of origin, of course, is where the emigrants came from and, and the country of residence is where the immigrants arrived as a, a destination and also settled. Uh, so country of origin, country of residence are important terms in, in this episode. So one of the definitions of diaspora that adds a level of granularity and also distinction between diaspora and immigrants is provided by the IOM, the International Organization for Migration. And in their glossary on migration, they define it as migrants or descendants of migrants whose identity and sense of belonging have been shaped by their migration experience and background. So as we've seen with the historical perspective, 
the term diaspora was used to describe a forced displacement of people, in this case the Jewish population. But today, it's now generally used to describe those who are identified or do identify with a home, but also live outside of it. We get here a sense of, of identity into the definition that's quite interesting. Yeah, I think identity is going to be very central to any diaspora. But I think identity can apply to quite literally anything. And I think one of the additional definitions is from Rogers Brubaker, who adds another level on top of this identity and adds agenda setting and agency. He kind of argues in his writings that a diaspora doesn't just exist because the people exist and they identify as something. He says what sets a diaspora apart is that they're going to be pursuing certain priorities, they'll have an agenda with goals that they want to meet, policies that they want to enact. I think that definition is going to be very helpful when we look at the case studies that we are going to go over in the rest of this podcast, explore the dynamics in which diasporas have an impact on foreign policy. Without further ado, then let's move on to our first section yeah. of this podcast. Let's dive into it. So, obviously... There are many examples of diasporas. There are the Kurds, the Jews. Well, the Mexican, the Italian. There's Cubans, Armenians. Oh, French, of course. <laughs> there's the Irish diaspora. <laughs> Obviously, if you name a country or a region, there's probably a diaspora for it. Absolutely. We're going to focus on three examples that we think highlight different facets of the relationship between diasporas and their countries of origin, their countries of residency, and the foreign policies of both. We'll start right off with the um, Cuban diaspora in the United States, yeah. right? We should first say here, though, we want to make a note that each diaspora is different. There is sort of this sense that, oh, every diaspora uh, has a certain relationship dynamic with its country of origin, country of residence. But because when we go back to that definition from the IOM that talked about identity is shaped through experience, because every experience is going to be different, every diaspora is going to be different. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Assumption. And this uniqueness actually is also seen in some of the readings. Jennifer Brinkenhoff in 2019, she published an interesting article within the, the Hague Journal of Diplomacy in one of the issues. And she says that the efforts of defining diaspora diplomacy are quite uh, case-specific if we take the example of Cuba that we'll have in a few moments. Also function-specific, if we look at influencing the country of residence foreign policy, and also sometimes role-specific, if we look at functions of an ambassador. Going back to the Cuban example, the Cuban diaspora within the United States was sort of formed within the first half of the 20th century as many Cubans left under the communist regime and fled mostly to Florida, where about 70% of all Cuban-Americans still reside today. So that's sort of how the Cuban diaspora came to being. And even though perhaps it's not the largest diaspora within the United States, it is an incredibly powerful one. Um, and a lot of this, I think, has to do with the political dynamic within the United States. I also saying that the Cuban diaspora within the United States has different interests and values than that of the Cubans' country of origin. I think that's a great point to make here. The Cuban diaspora, it has a unique viewpoint towards its country of origin. It is completely against the regime there. It does not want the United States to increase diplomatic ties with Cuba without 
getting some concessions out of it in terms of democratization, human rights. It's seen, it looks at Cuba and it looks at its reason why they left, why mm -hmm. the diaspora even exists. And it says we need to rectify some of those conditions to increase any diplomatic ties. That's sort of a, a red line for them. What would be a way for this Cuban diaspora to actually have an impact on foreign policies uh, of the United States, for instance? I think in the United States, and this might be true with quite a few other democracies, depending on the electoral dynamics, because Cuban Americans are so highly concentrated in Florida, I think that they are able to reach out to politicians to organize themselves, and they vote quite often as a block. So when you're looking at influencing foreign policy through domestic elections, that is the way I think that the Cuban Americans have the, have the largest influence. And also, it's messaging. They have a very simple message. We don't want increased diplomatic ties without certain concessions. Yeah, great. And, and I was also actually surprised by the fact that well, the Cuban diaspora would massively vote Republican, whereas I would have considered they would vote Democrat at first. I guess since kind of the earliest days of the Cuban diaspora, they have been attached to the Republican Party. This is mostly because of JFK's mishandling of the Bay of Pigs and sort of Republican rhetoric being very anti-communist throughout the Cold War. Obama sort of did away with that streak, winning the Cuban-American vote, winning Florida. Yeah. But at the very end of his second term, Obama visited Cuba, tried to normalize relations. But Cuban-Americans didn't think he was getting the necessary concessions from Cuba. So in 2016, swung back to Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So it kind of shows that when you do have a very simple message and you can organize your diaspora, you can make it very clear, hey, this is the priority we want. If you don't make strides to achieve it, or if you do things counter to it, we aren't going to reward you in the next election. And what's also actually interesting in the, in the literature, and I'm taking this this very same article by, uh, by Brinkerhoff, well, she states that diaspora's influence on the country of residence foreign policy is actually most effective when it corresponds with the country of residents' national interests and value. And I think this is the case of Cubans in the United States, as you just mentioned. So, uh, yeah, 100%. Do you think it's time to move to the next segment then? Yeah. Here we go. So, for the second segment of this episode, we will discuss the Indian diaspora diplomacy case. William, in what regard is Indian diaspora diplomacy different from the Cuban example we've just had? I think these two examples are probably polar opposites, partly because the Cuban diaspora really has nothing to do with the Cuban government. Yeah, right. And they are opposed to them completely. And the Indian diaspora, not only is it relatively uh, harmonious with the government of India, we can explore later how the Indian diaspora is perhaps even manufactured by India. Absolutely. And I want to start with some striking figures. So all around the world, there are almost 270 million immigrants. Out of those 270 million, 16 million are Indian immigrants. 
and considered uh, Indian or part of the Indian diaspora worldwide. This should pose an immense challenge to indeed engage as an Indian government with this Indian diaspora worldwide. And also for the diaspora itself, because I think the diaspora, uh, a key part of it is this idea of being able to communicate and organize with one another. And it's very hard to do that when the Indian diaspora, unlike the Cuban diaspora, for example, is not highly concentrated. A million Indians living in the United States. You have nearly as many in Canada. You have Mm. huge populations in the UK, in Kenya, in Mauritius, in Australia. I mean, the list goes on and on of places where there are um, Indian diasporas. So it is very unique uh, in the sense that you don't have this sort of high concentration in one country. Uh, And what distinguishes this Indian diaspora diplomacy? Um, I I think it's kind of all about a way of utilizing a diaspora as an influential asset um, and in shaping and influencing foreign policies abroad. Uh, Is is that the case for the Indian um, diaspora worldwide? Yeah, I think you could say that. But if we look a little bit at the history of it, it doesn't have this sort of, I guess, inflection point. It wasn't that there's this big revolution and you had this mass exodus. Indian migration has been happening for the last century or before that to many different places all around the world. But when we look at a piece by Kishan Rana in the Hague Journal of Diplomacy, writes about the Indian diaspora. Mm. He explores how Indian policy plays a role that is really unique. The diaspora didn't come in existence overseas, and then now it's sort of catching up with how how does it incorporate the diaspora into its foreign policy the way many, many other countries do. India, actually, starting in the 80s, was the one sowing the seeds to create this diaspora. It had sort of uh, effect on it. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's a cultivation Mm. of the diaspora. And this is actually one of the areas where this Indian policy regarding its diaspora worldwide has been successful. And it's been in cultivating this diaspora through means of re-engagement. Uh, and this goes through reaching out to the community. I remember, for instance, not long ago, Prime Minister Modi going to Denmark and addressing the diaspora there with a clear message of them to be advocates and actors to spread the message of uh, coming to India uh, for for tourism and to, to increase tourism. So this is quite interesting indeed. So reaching out to, to the community, working with it, also actually plays, or the Indian diaspora plays a quite important role and an active role in the economic and political sphere, right, worldwide. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's multiple CEOs, many politicians. I mean, the American vice president, the British prime minister. Rishi Sunak, yep. Kamala Harris, also of CEO of Google. Yep. Or, I mean, the list can go on and on so and on tried, of yeah. influential Indians throughout the world. And India, I think, recognized this, and it's using its diaspora to almost act as a sort of informal diplomatic core and using these key figures, using them to reach out. So it's really unique. The Indian government is reaching out through its diaspora, I wouldn't say prior to its official diplomatic representation, but it, it's definitely not selling them short. It's using them to its you know, full advantage. Yeah, so what you're saying here is that to some extent, during all these years probably that this strategy exists, uh, the Indian government uh, tries to engage those leading members of the diaspora community abroad for them to become bridge builders in diplomatic relations on a corporate diplomacy level or 
state-to-state level. Yeah. That's quite interesting indeed. And what I find also striking is that Indian descent, second and third generation Indians, they keep nurturing this Indian identity uh, without also denying their new identity in their country of residence, I think. Yeah, definitely. And the, India, I think, recognizes that in order to keep utilizing its diaspora, it will have to keep nurturing this sense of being Indian generations after someone has immigrated uh, from India. And so to kind of sum it up, I think diaspora diplomacy in regards to the Indian diaspora really showcases the most cutting edge approach in engaging with one's diaspora as a form of both public diplomacy and Mm. you could even call it domestic public diplomacy if you want to consider your diaspora as a domestic populist. Mm. I think India really is the example of how they're the perfect example of how to engage with your diaspora in order to increase your image abroad and achieve both diplomatic and cultural and economic aims. And, and it's also a good example of how to use diasporas or, or to have diplomacy by diaspora instead of through diaspora. So leveraging diasporas as agents of change and also on the, the domain of foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Also, uh, regarding this engagement of governments with their diasporas, is that it doesn't only apply today to the case of India specifically, but also take the example of the United States, where Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in 2011 had a speech and an opening remark, uh, and in which she articulates this advocacy agency aspect of diasporas. Uh, You have the potential... Uh, to be the most powerful people-to-people asset we can bring to the world's table. Uh, Because of your familiarity with cultural uh, norms, uh, your own motivations, your own special skills and leadership. Regarding this uh, state, what would you say it is? Because she's done the speech in 2011, but long after India started implementing this strategy, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think it might actually be a direct reaction to to NDL, though can't rule it out, Um, you know, looking around and saying, hey, yeah, these are diaspora, whether it's the American diaspora abroad or anybody's, is a tool for change. They can be agents of the state, but agents for enacting certain policies, especially if they can get them to coalesce around a certain priority or a certain idea. And I think a lot of countries are going to realize that it is a very effective tool. Oh, you, you, you summed it up quite well indeed. And, and this is where it starts to become complex because indeed the um, foreign policy within the country of residents of a diaspora is actually domestic uh, policy for them and vice versa. Yeah. No, you touched on an excellent point there that for a diaspora, the foreign policy of its country of residence can still be domestic policy. That's probably the biggest takeaway from this podcast is that diasporas don't necessarily view foreign policy as foreign policy. It does have a strong element of seeming like domestic policy because they come from those countries of origin. So I think um, thanks to this Indian case, which we digressed on relativity of diasporas, foreign policies uh, towards country of residence and country of origin, I think it's the excellent time to switch to our third segment of this podcast. Here we go. So the last case study that we're going to be looking at is the Jewish diaspora, which is definitely the oldest and 
very might well be the most complex diaspora of the of the three, but also of, of any diaspora. Because it combines not only um, immigration, but also maybe a cultural and, and religious religion as well, yeah, dimension. Yeah. Um, but given all of these different identities at play, um, given the massive amount of history, we kind of want to focus more, however, on the developments of these last few months, namely the war in Gaza, and how that is going to affect the Jewish diaspora, both worldwide, mm. but especially in the United States, because the United States is Israel's staunchest ally. And, and remembering Joe Biden saying that he has rock-solid and unwavering support for Israel. In the literature, there's one article by Elaine Ho and Fiona McConnell that interlink diasporas and public diplomacy, and that states that one of the objectives of the Jewish diaspora is to secure the support of their country of residence for policies or interventions targeted to uh, their country of origin, so, so to Israel. So break they that down into... Exactly. Into English for it. Uh, making sure that they get the support of the US in this case uh, to be friendly in events of attacks against Israel. Yeah, and I think that sort of kind of simple priority, uh, just like the other um, in, the, in the Cuban example and, and a lot of other diasporas, when you have a very clear priority, um, it can make your diaspora really coalesce and be more effective. And the Jewish diaspora within the United States has been very effective in shaping U.S. foreign policy, both towards Israel and the whole Middle East region. And I think next, then, we should kind of start to focus on the events of the last couple of months. Mm, so definitely. right after the events of October 7th, there was wide support for Israel, both among Jewish Americans, but amongst all Americans. And, and all Jewish diaspora yeah, worldwide Jewish diaspora as well, in general. Worldwide, mm. And then countries worldwide you know, offered support, but the United States especially so. In the last couple of months, there's been, well, not a little bit, there's been uh, a lot of uh, demonstrations and protests, and we're kind of going to ask a few questions based on the Jewish diaspora, how that is perhaps severing the, the connection between the Jewish diaspora in the United States and Israel itself. You know, according to a poll in 2020, a majority of Jewish Americans believe that connection with Israel was somewhat or very important to their identity. This was obviously taken before the war, but it just shows what the baseline was now. Yeah, now we're, so. we're maybe witnessing a, a shift in um, this support of diasporas towards country of origins foreign policy. It's been since a couple of years yeah, that we're wild. starting to witness a divide or, or a growing um, uh, a schism, perhaps, a between, schism, between yeah. the two. And obviously the situation is still ongoing, and I think it's ongoing not just you know in the geopolitical sense, but it's ongoing within the sense of identity of you know many members of the Jewish diaspora. And because of that, this case study is not going to maybe draw as much of a conclusion as ask sort of the question that what happens when there is a split between the country of origins uh, priorities and its actions, and the positions that the diaspora have. And this is also, I think, is the growing anti-Semitism, not only in the US, but really worldwide, and having a repercussion on, on all the, the Jewish uh, diaspora. It, it is a good question to ask. I mean, obviously, we don't want to construe <coughs> it as, you know, the Jewish diaspora is going to support Israel less because it's afraid of, of people 
who are going to be anti-Semitic. But maybe they actually acknowledge that the actions that the Israeli government have on Gaza and the full war they have on, on the Gaza Strip at the moment actually yeah, will right. impact their lives as uh, the perception of people and the growing anti-Semitism yeah. will impact their daily life. Well, also, it's because the diaspora is saying, hey, yeah, having a connection to Israel is central or at least plays some role to my identity as a member of the Jewish diaspora. Everyone else has been hearing that the Jewish diaspora supports Israel. That's going to be very interesting if all of a sudden the Jewish diaspora is like, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Mm. We don't want to be as closely associated to the actions of, of this government. And you might see a split or, or just a distancing from how central connections are to Israel. Also uh, showing how important the study of diaspora diplomacy is mm-hmm. for um, Institute of Foreign Affairs, for instance, but also uh, academics of international relations. Yeah. I think on this note, we could move to our concluding remarks and uh, actually a last surprise stage of our episodes. Yeah, I can't believe it's over already. <laughs> Here we go. So, we thought it would be interesting to add into this academic podcast a few real-world examples uh, and ask some of our peers, first off, of course, if they feel like they are part of a diaspora, and if so, which one, to really dig in and bring context into the discussion that we've been having. So, here are a few of their responses. Hi, my name is Sorsha. I'm from Ireland. Uh, Yes, I would consider myself diaspora. I'm from the United States of America. And do you consider yourself part of any diaspora? Uh, Yes, I consider myself part of the Somali diaspora. I'm from Sweden and I would definitely say I'm part of a diaspora. I've lived abroad most of my life, so I would definitely say that I am part of the Swedish diaspora in the Netherlands. Uh, I consider myself a part of the Indian diaspora. Uh, I'm from Florida, the United States. Uh, No, I don't want to say I consider myself active in any kind of American community or diaspora. I think as an Irish person, there's always a sense of community when you're abroad. It's been very important to me and my family to, you know, keep the Swedishness going. And I've also tried to interact with some Swedish communities and networks within the Netherlands. So diaspora diplomacy seems to be much more diverse and complex of a topic than we might have first thought. Yeah, absolutely. And going one step further, actually, we could introduce the concept of intersectionality because feeling or, or, or belonging to a diaspora doesn't necessarily mean um, you are uh, a part of the diaspora from your country of origin. Maybe you uh, can be also part of a, a religious diaspora mm-hmm. uh, or uh, in the case of uh, uh, dual citizens uh, having the feeling that you are also uh, a part of the diaspora of, of your other nationality rather than the other. So there's much more layering uh, and that we would actually encourage uh, academics to, to f- for their research, right? Yeah, definitely. I think that is probably the biggest question going forward is to see how they can be used by MFAs and, and diplomats to sort of be a source of engagement and a tool for furthering diplomatic aims. So with this, we are at the end of the first episode of Diplomacy Talks. Well, did you enjoy yourself, Thibaut? I absolutely did. I had a great time as well. I had a great time with you too. We hope you had a wonderful time listening as well. And we would like to end by saying that if you would like to dive more into this topic, we've included in the show notes the bibliography of some of the sources that we've used. Timo, any final words? Well, long live uh, diaspora diplomacy, I'd say, and looking forward to next episodes. Yep. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button and to share this podcast if you enjoyed it.